0: Hi, I'm Joe. And I'm Matt. We're the NC Wine Guys. Welcome to a special episode of Cork Talk.
1: Normally, we sit down with owners of a local winery or vineyard. But in this episode, we took a slight detour to talk with Amy Michael Theray about a very important topic, the
0: spotted lanternfly. Amy is the Cooperative Agricultural Pest Survey Coordinator for the North Carolina State Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services. She is part of the team that is responding to a growing threat to grapes and to other crops here in North Carolina and across much of the East Coast.
1: The spotted lanternfly is an invasive species that is causing major damage to the grape growing industry. It taps into the trunks of grapevines and disrupts
0: the growth and ripening of fruit. If you're listening to this episode in August or September, there's a chance that you might actually see the spotted lanternfly in action. This time of year, they engage in a very noticeable mating swarm and have the tendency to travel very far. If you think
1: you've seen a spotted lanternfly, go to ncagr.gov slf. You'll also find more information about identifying the fly and how to take care of it if you see one.
0: Wine class with the wine mouth is back. This time, Jesse and Jessica talked to us about aldehydes. This episode is made possible in part by a grant from the North Carolina Wine and Grape Council. You can find out more information by going to their website, ncwine.org. So sit back, pour a glass, and listen. All right, we're here today with Amy-Michael Thuray from the North Carolina Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services. Amy, welcome to Cork Talk.
1: Hi, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So our topic today is not directly wine, but is wine-related, and we'll get to that in a moment. But Amy, tell us about who you are, what you do with the Department of Ag, and, and why it's how it is impactful to wine.
2: All right. So uh, my formal title is the Cooperative Agricultural Pest Survey, or CAPS, coordinator. Um, essentially, what I do is uh, coordinate Surveys for invasive species that we're worried about coming into North Carolina, and um, we do have several pests that we look for in vineyards every year, and one of the ones that has been most prolific and headed our way the fastest recently is the spotted lanternfly, so uh, that has shown up. Uh, in Pennsylvania in 2014 and it's already managed to make its way to 12 states in just eight years and we're unlucky enough to be state number 12 as of June.
1: So tell folks a little bit more about where this fly originated, like where is its native home and why it's detrimental to grapevines and other uh, agricultural
2: Sure. So the spotted lanternfly itself is originally native to Eastern Asia. Um, Its native range spans uh, approximately from northern China all the way down to Vietnam. It feeds on a huge range of host plants. I think the count now is over 70 different species. And while its favorites seem to be the tree of heaven, which is an invasive tree from the same range, um, it also has been very detrimental to grapes, uh, particularly up in Pennsylvania and other infested areas. So um, this is a pest that we've been looking for since 2015, and we've just found it this year.
0: We just found it this year. You've been looking for 2015. so. Why is this so much of an issue? Why does it present such a danger or a, a, a trouble to the crops?
2: Right. So it's kind of a two pronged pest. So um, it is a, it is a very detrimental pest, particularly in grapes. they have seen the largest economic impact in that crop from spotted lantern fly. However, with the number of plants it feeds on, uh, it can be damaging to landscapes especially. It seems to like roses and a lot of other popular ornamentals. Because it feeds on so many different things, it can have an explosive population. So uh, it can also be an incredible nuisance pest. So um, one fun thing that we've had happen in the United States that has not happened in either its native range or other places where it's been invasive is that they'll have what's called a mating swarm, uh, typically in the fall, where the adults essentially reach this critical mass, and they all try to disperse to find new spotted lanternfly, and that typically lasts about six to eight weeks. Um, And during that time, they'll fly farther longer and all kind of congregate in one place. So unfortunately, that can be vineyards. It can also just be random, seemingly random places like storefronts for instance oh. um even in uh like downtown urban areas so my personal favorite story anecdote is uh there was a Chipotle in downtown Philadelphia that had to close a door just because that was a place that the lanternflies had decided was going to be their watering hole. And so every time someone opened the door, a few dozen would fly in and nobody wants a lanternfly burrito.
0: Oh no, no, not at all. No,
1: (laughs) We were talking with someone this weekend and they were describing um, in, in Philadelphia or in the Pennsylvania area about having to like sweep them off the sidewalks and that sort of thing, because there were so many of them. So that's, I can
2: imagine that's, Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. And that's absolutely the mating swarm. They'll just get up into crazy numbers. The other thing too is that they're not true flies. They're more closely related to cicadas and things like that. Mm-hmm. So um, when they feed, they're essentially sucking the sap out of the plants. So, And what they're trying to do is concentrate the sugar out of that sap and by filtering out the water which they'll expel out of the other end, but it's not a perfect process. So what comes out also still has some sugar in it. We call that honeydew, which is a more pleasant term for it. (laughs) Um, But because they're feeding basically constantly, uh, if you have a heavy infestation of lantern flies, then pretty much everything underneath where they're feeding will get covered in the honeydew. Um, Because it's a sweet substance, uh, it will attract stinging insects. So it's kind of like the phenomenon when you have a soda can at the barbecue in the summer right. and a yellowjack is following you around. Same kind of thing, but on a larger scale, and you, it's a little more difficult to move the ground underneath the tree. Yeah. Um, the other thing, too, is that with that honeydew, it will also uh, encourage the growth of sooty mold, which is this black mold. Um, if you're a plant living underneath this infested tree, that does mean that it can block photosynthesis as well, so it can mm-hmm. kind of damage the understory.
0: Interesting. So, so it, it not only feeds on the, the sap and the, the sugary kind of substances, but it mm-hmm. also, as a byproduct, can encourage other negative diseases and stuff that you don't want. Exactly. Okay. Yes. Yeah. That's dangerous. Really dangerous combination.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah. And the other thing, too, is that they're very clumsy. Um, <laughs> so uh, that comes into play with, uh, especially during the swarms, the adults will try to like fall with style and they'll end up caught in people's hair and and things like that so from the nuisance standpoint that's very bad. They also tend to try to climb to get air before they try to disperse and that's for both the nymphs and the adults and that's kind of contributed to their spread um, just from the nymphs and adults cl- either climbing into vehicles or um, what's been the most uh, the biggest factor contributing to the spread has been the egg masses. <laughs> so uh, egg masses is probably the most mobile life stage of spotted lanternfly because they will lay the egg masses on any flat surface that could be trees ideally but they'll also lay them on pretty much anything stored outside so that can include um, vehicles even in wheel wells the insides of pallets Um, we found them on planes before tarps that are stored outside it could truly be anything and so if say you store something outside for the winter, um, some camping equipment or something, and then the next spring you uh, decide to go somewhere and go camping for a few days, and it's a little warmer there, then that might be enough to encourage the eggs to hatch, and then unfortunately you have to do an introduction. So, oh no. Yeah, so that's kind of been how it's been spread around. Not camping specifically, I'm saying. But, and, uh, Not just transportation just a, and yeah. all that shipping and everything. Yeah. Wow. yeah, they're excellent hitchhikers. So. <laughs>
1: So we know it was first identified in Pennsylvania, but do we know how it got to the U.S.? And do we know if it was actually somewhere else first? or?
2: So um, it did become invasive in Korea before uh, it made its way to the U.S. Um, but from what we can tell, uh, the infestation in the U.S. did come from China. We don't believe that it came over on an agricultural shipment. However, this is one thing that's not as much of a pest in its native range. And unfortunately that kind of led to some issues when it came here, because there hadn't been as much research on it. Um, It was first noticed by an outdoorsman in Pennsylvania, uh, kind of in the same area where they think it came in. Um, Again, we think it was egg masses on a non-agricultural commodity. So um, I guess a little bit of background for more of what our ag department does. There is a system in place for whenever plant products uh, go from one country to another or sometimes one state to another, uh, typically they want an export certification saying that it's free of certain pests that we're looking for, things like that, and pretty much every country provides some level of inspection before things move around. However, that only happens with plants. So if you have a pest like this that can move on non-plant material, then you can have more introductions.
0: So that's why sometimes when you're at the border, they ask you, are you bringing over any fruit or vegetables or anything like
2: that? Exactly. So um, I know it can seem like a pain to declare your fruits and vegetables, but please do. Um, you never know what's going along in it. And um, I mean, if they do happen to find something with it, then you probably didn't want to eat that insect anyway.
0: <laughs> that's true. It's safer so. to, to declare it and have it inspected. And if it's good, they'll probably let it through, maybe. I can't speak for customs and border control, but...
2: Yeah, and it is different in every country, but typically they will uh, at least inspect it for you. Yeah. So. Well,
0: that's awesome. So, so you mentioned in its native range, it's not that much of a pest. So why is that? Are there more natural predators there? Or have they just done more research? What's the what's the deal?
2: So there's a combination of factors there. So... Um, I mentioned that Tree of Heaven, Ailanthus altissima, has the same native range. So um, in that country, uh, the Tree of Heaven is just kind of like a common tree. It's not particularly weedy or anything. But in the U.S., um, it was brought over as a garden plant about 200 years ago, 250 years ago. Um, Became wildly popular and was planted in gardens all over, especially the eastern United States. And then sometime in the 1970s, it started becoming really aggressive and did what we call escaped cultivation. Um, And in that time, it's become very aggressive, especially along roadsides, um, really just any kind of disturbed habitat. So roadsides, edges of parking lots, uh, rail lines, uh, stream edges, things like that. So they really like to be kind of on the tree line. And what the tree of heaven does, it has uh, an allelopathic uh, tendency. And what that means is that it essentially pumps this chemical into the soil to try to suppress the growth of other plants. Mm. So uh, plant chemical warfare kind (laughs) (laughs) of. And that chemical does give a very strong, bad smell to the tree of heaven. Um, To me, I get rotten peanut butter. Some people say burnt fish it's just unpleasant any way you look at it but it is the best way to identify the tree huh. from experience <laughs> <Interesting>. <laughs> um yeah and because it's kind of filled in these corridors especially uh in the east coast uh about, about down to north carolina and as far north as uh, new england um it's kind of laid out the red carpet for spotted lanternfly unfortunately um because it is far and away the favorite host tree for this pest,
0: so that makes sense. So mm-hmm. it wasn't. So we brought it in the plant itself. Uh, mm-hmm. So we wanted it for you know agricultural, ornamentals type stuff like that. Mm-hmm. It escaped. It basically went rogue, and now it's here more so common than where the native range of the spotted lanternfly is, right? Or more, more prevalent, I guess.
2: Oh yes. Yeah. Tree of heaven. Um, so that's actually how we started looking for spotted lanternfly. We did start looking in vineyards and then from there we transitioned to kind of doing a tree of heaven survey throughout the state. Um, and we've been doing that for several years now. And, uh, unfortunately it seems like we're pretty well full of it, <laughs> oh, no. okay. uh, especially along our major, tra- major travel corridors, unfortunately. And, the other side of that, too, is that because this tree really likes disturbed areas like the parking lots and things, if you have someone traveling interstate, then if they stop to, say, use the restroom or, or get gas or something like that, um, or if they're shipping one, something from one place to another then if you stop and park for a little bit and one of the mobile life stages is there, then there's a pretty good chance that if they hop off, they'll have a Tree of Heaven there to eat. So it's like, oh great, I get a cheeseburger, basically. (laughs) So
0: So not only did you stop, but they stopped, so. Right. Mm. Okay.
1: So let's talk about the life cycle of of Mm -hmm. these pests.
2: Right, so um, typically the eggs will uh, be in the field over fall and winter. Um, And that's kind of how they'll survive the cold. Um, Let's see, I do have some here. So essentially what they'll do is lay normally 30 or more eggs kind of in rows. And then they'll cover it with like a waxy layer. So at first it'll look kind of shiny, almost like silly putty. um, And then over time it'll kind of dry and crack. And then by the time it gets to spring, there's like a certain... Temperature that it reaches that will be good for the nymphs to come out So in the states farther north, they're typically seeing a catch happening sometime in May um, The first few instars the well, I guess the first three instars will be black with white spots um, And then the final fourth and final instar will be red and black with white spots um, those nymphs will be, the, the younger nymphs will be in the field from about May through July. Um, the later instar nymphs will be out from July through September, and you could see adults as early as July. Um, and that swarming season typically happens about a month after the adults first emerge. Um, and again, will last for six to eight weeks. Um, before that mating season, the adults are kind of just Hanging out, continuing to feed, waiting to see who emerges next because, you know, they've got to be picky. (laughs) (laughs) But then um, after that mating swarm happens, they'll continue to persist in the environment until we get um, hard frost. um, And they'll literally just freeze to wherever they're stuck so it's pretty common we have had several folks go up to infested areas to kind of prepare uh for this infestation because we knew it was headed our way at some point point. and you can just walk around and find uh previously frozen spotted lanternfly just stuck to trees wow so
0: and so because of the winter they're basically just like a one season pest right they don't they don't come back afterward it's their are young their offspring they're the next the next cycle that comes in afterwards.
2: Yes. Yeah. It'll be those eggs that hatch the next year. Um, and that's, um, one area I, I did say like, that's what the life cycle looks like farther North. Um, because insects are cold blooded and we're a much warmer state than say Pennsylvania. Um, depending on what elevation you're at, um, we could see that happening as many as one to two months ahead of schedule. And, um, I guess when we got to the Kernersville find, um, we did that did make us the first state to have adults in the U.S. Uh, in late June. Oh wow, so that's early. That is a little earlier than we expected. Yes. <laughs> so
0: are we concerned at all with uh, because we are a warmer climate and our winters don't often get as cold? Are we concerned about like the adult population not dying off with the freezes, or are, are, will they persist into the next season if it doesn't get cold enough?
2: That's something that we don't know yet. I hope that there's some other mechanism that kills them (laughs) off over the winter, but um, that's just what they've been seeing farther north. Okay,
0: that's good. So Mm -hmm.
1: let's talk about the Kernersville find and how that happened and and what
2: have we done
1: about that particular site in in
2: general. Right, so um, it was on June 23rd. 2022 we had a diligent citizen report a spotted lantern fly to us um i guess he had seen them in the area before but didn't know what they were that they were a pest of regulatory concern and then um after visiting an infested area with a family member she was telling them about you know like oh these are really bad if you're seeing them you should report them so when he got back he let us know Um, We went ahead and investigated the area where he reported them from and then conducted what we call a delimiting survey, which is trying to figure out, you know, how far out from this initial find has this insect been found? And we kept finding it farther and farther out. Mm. So um, at this point, uh, again, we're still... nearly a month in now um yeah so
0: how did we so how did it first kind of come into the state then
2: okay so um again like i said we've been looking for it for several years um prior to this year we had we have had 10 interceptions um and so that's when folks have told us about like hey i think i found spotted lanternfly we've gone out investigated and it turned out to be true um seven of those um which again the first one was in 2019 We had four more in 2020 and then five more in 2021. Those, for the most part, were single dead adult hitchhikers. Last year, we did have a handful that involved live adults during the swarming season um, on the places where they originated from. But because we were told right away, we were able to go in and do that delimitation and make sure that, yes, it was just this one shipment or this one uh vehicle for instance and we were able to get rid of it and we've been surveying those areas again this year um and we're confident that nothing got out um unfortunately that wasn't the case in Kernersville um it does seem that that population has been there for at least a year because we were finding the immature so those eggs would have had to be laid sometime last year at the very least so um At this point, uh, it does look like it's localized to uh, about a three square mile radius. We are surveying out to five miles at least. Um, And we are continuing our detection surveys um, at high risk locations throughout the state. So uh, rest areas, uh, tourism destinations, things like that. Um, Also, we have been conducting trapping at vineyards this year as well. Uh, just because the risk is so great to that crop.
1: So how do you how does the survey how does it work to do us to talk about a survey how does that work exactly?
2: Okay so there's a few different ways that we look for spotted lanternfly so um, the primary way that we look is visually Um, so that's literally just we go out with a set of binoculars and we'll tend to look at tree of heaven especially if it's in the area since it is the preferred host and we'll just look the tree up and down see what we can see Um, if it is one of those higher risk areas we will put what's called a circle trap out I don't have one of these with me today but it's basically a mesh cone that you wrap around the tree it takes advantage of that climbing behavior we talked about and kind of funnels them into this cone and into a bag Um, and basically they just got, get caught in the bag and then we'll kind of get baked by the sun. So it's not the best way to go, but it's not a pest that we want either. So, um, yeah, we've been putting those traps out. Fortunately, we haven't found anything in those traps, but it gives us peace of mind for, you know, if there would happen to be a spotted lanternfly out there on a day, uh, where we couldn't see it, then it would get caught in the trap is kind of the idea. And then my favorite way that we look for spotted lanternfly is, uh, we actually have trained detector dogs that, uh, smell the egg masses. Um, so again, we talked about how they can be laid pretty much anywhere. Um, it does seem to be that in trees, they tend to like to lay the eggs higher up, say like 18 feet or higher. Um, so that starts to get a little difficult to see, um, especially this is an audio medium, but the egg masses essentially look like just a little dirt clot or a piece of lichen right. or something like that, yeah, especially a from a distance.
0: Yeah. It's actually really helpful to see it in person because I've seen pictures online and I thought, oh, these are big. These are noticeable. They're like, you know, maybe four or five inches long. And it's like, no, that's like, that's small.
2: Yeah. Let's see. What is that? It's actually a little it's smaller than a wine cork. Oh, perfect.
0: <laughs> that's, a, that's a really good analogy.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And i yeah, uh, I would say about the size of an adult spotted lanternfly. I hope you're not seeing those <laughs> wherever you are. Though. We'll definitely be
0: posting pictures as well in in oh, the posts okay. and everything like that, so okay. people can take a look at it when they when they listen and if they wish.
2: All right, excellent.
0: So okay. you've got the cones. So what what are other
1: ways are we? I mean, when we find them, or like maybe in the future, how are we going to get disposed of these creatures? Right? Gotcha. Pesticides, or are we doing something else?
2: Okay, so we have a multi-pronged approach to try to get rid of the spotted lanternflies. Um, the first and most important thing you can do is report it if you see it. Um, we do have a reporting tool on our website. It's ncagr.gov slf. And there's a big red button that says report here. Um, and it links to a form that uh, has you put in your location where you saw the insect. Um, And it also asks for a photo. Um, And I will say the most helpful thing you can do with a photo is include a size reference next to the insect, like it could be a wine cork, it could be an orange, whatever you have nearby, a coin, something like that, Um, that can really help with some lookalikes. Um, And we do have a lot of lookalikes in this state, so um, those reports are screened by a number of trained entomologists. that. You know, we'll help make a determination. Um, if it is spotted lanternfly, then we'll get back in touch and uh, let you know. You know, if it is in an area we know to be infested, then that helps us kind of direct our survey efforts, which is great. Um, and if it is outside the area where we expect it to find it, then that becomes an investigation where we'll go in and try to see how bad the problem is. Um, and again, the earlier we know about it, the better chance we have at getting rid of it. Um, but to truly answer your question, the ways that we're getting rid of it is really to try to target an invasive with an invasive. So uh, we're really utilizing that tree of heaven that's already here and very well established against spotted lanternfly. Um, because, you know, this insect has a huge host range. We can't, tr- we can't treat every plant that it will eat. But our native insects don't really recognize Tree of Heaven as a food source. So because it's not from here, but to spotted lanternfly, it's its favorite food. Hmm. So um, what we're doing primarily is treating the trees with an in- a systemic insecticide. So it gets sequestered in the tree um, and that provides season-long control. Okay. So anytime a spotted lanternfly comes in to try to take a nibble or I guess really suck some sap, (laughs) then uh, it will be poisonous um, unbeknownst to this insect. So uh, that's primarily what we're using in the Kernersville area right now. Um, Just because, um, you know, it's a newer find. We found it shortly before we expected the mating season to begin. And, um, you know, by hitting it aggressively with these, Uh, insecticides, then our thinking was, you know, maybe we can knock it down before they start reproducing and keep it from spreading um, if we can get to them before more became adults. Um, Beyond that, uh, there is also an herbicide that we can use for Tree of Heaven to kind of reduce that population in a multi-pronged way. Um, And again, that's applied directly to the tree, so um, trying to get rid of that without having any off-target impacts. Um, if we find it on a different host, um, we have essentially only been seeing it off of tree of heaven in areas where they're so incredibly infested that there's barely a space on the tree left for the spotted mm-hmm. lanternfly fly to feed. We will see them on things like Virginia creeper, roses, wild grape, things like that. Uh, cherry trees as well. Uh, again, about 70 other species of plants, <laughs> but that typically only happens in heavier infestations. So then we're using a knockdown spray for that. And it's a chemical that's commercially available. You can use it as a homeowner. Um, so it's a pretty innocuous thing, but we do try to get it as close to the insect as we can. Um, cause it really works on contact. Um, and then this upcoming winter, uh, we're not going to take a break either. Um, there is an oil product. it's essentially a food grade soybean oil that degrades the uh, that waxy outer layer of the egg mass so that can be applied to the egg mass and kind of destroy you know every time you spray one, you're getting rid of you know 30 or so more oh. for the next year.
0: Yeah and how many more that will spawn and continue onward right?
2: Exactly. So yeah we're trying to hit every life stage as much as we can.
0: So is there any any life stage that's more vulnerable to our prevention efforts?
2: Um, I would say that those, well, hmm, let's see. Because the thing with egg masses is that if you can find them, you can also just scrape away the egg masses and then stomp on them. That can work. Um, And we actually have made these uh, identification cards. So um, they're the size of a regular credit card and it's got our see it, snap it, report it at our website um so you can use them to scrape away the uh the egg mass itself and then we have life size images of each life stage of spotted linear oh, cool. fly on it as well so we've been trying to give those out to folks that's really um, cool yeah
0: and it has that little ruler on it so you can hold it up next to the bug
2: if you have it exactly and take the picture there's your really easy size reference it's perfect <laughs> how, it, how awesome. would
0: folks
1: get one of these
2: cards so um we've been taking these around to a variety of different outreach events that we go to so that includes some industry uh events such as um, grape growing events especially Um, we'll also go to things like home shows um, home and garden shows nursery shows things like that we've also been uh, collaborating with cooperative extension to try to get these out as well so um, we seemed it seems like we can't keep them in stock fast enough <laughs> they're really going so
0: well that's a good thing i yes. mean it's good to spread the news out there and people love those types of things and if it's a card that's usable to tell you what to do you can scrape it you can take a picture you can see the size of it that's, that's a great a great kind of giveaway
2: yeah i, I, I thought so
0: <laughs> it's time again for wine class with the wine mounts jesse and jessica welcome back
3: Thanks.
1: So what are we talking about today?
3: Today we're talking about aldehydes.
1: Okay. Interesting. <laughs> Tell us more.
3: Absolutely. So aldehydes are a class of organic compounds. Here's a little of, of the science of the compounds. Here we go. Ready? <laughs> aldehydes are a class of organic compounds where a carbon atom shares a double bond with the oxygen atom and a hy- single bond with a hydrogen atom. And a single bond with another atom or a group of atoms, and so the double bond between that carbon and oxygen is the characteristic of all aldehydes. That's going to be known as a carbonyl group, which is important. So file that away somewhere. Many aldehydes have pleasant odors and smells, but and in principle are derived from alcohols by dehydrogenation or removal of a hydrogen, and that process is the is where the name aldehyde comes from. So. <clears throat> you have got that filed away. Stay with me here for a little bit. (laughs) Aldehydes can undergo a lot of different chemical reactions, including polymerization. They can combine with a lot of different molecules and produce condensation polymers that have been used not just in food science, but in plastics like Bakelite and in making Formica countertops. So this process of the polymerization to make the aldehydes can be used for a lot of different things. They're also used as solvents and can be used in perfume ingredients and intermediates and making dyes and different pharmaceuticals. There are examples of using aldehydes and retinols you know, for skin care and vision. So lots of, lots of different things. Actually, I may have misspoken. Actually, retinols, not retinols. I think I'm thinking about my mid-30s skincare routine. It's important to have that. <laughs> protecting retinol. Retinols with an OL, and the aldehydes are retinols with an AL, so take that back. I'd I'd like to retract that statement. The important takeaway here is aldehydes are important in a lot of different settings and uses, not just wine. Okay. So aldehydes are a really big category of things, but there are two important subgroups that we want to pay attention to. Aromatic aldehydes and aliphatic aldehydes. We're really getting into the weeds here, but These are very important because aliphatic aldehydes default, but aromatic aldehydes are good aromas. And we want to stick with these because we're talking about good, positive things. And these are things like vanillin, which what does that sound like? It might be vanilla. Vanillin. Mm, Yeah. Um, So these are going to be good things that we look for in wine. Very cool. Yeah, we really got in the weeds there. Sorry, guys. We yeah, need I to mean, just like pull us back
0: out. <laughs> all of the single bonds and double bonds. I'm I'm totally like. Are we talking? <laughs> Sounds about? like
1: a family tree that doesn't
0: fork.
3: <laughs> yeah, but basically, again, the takeaway is this is an important volatile compound that's found in wine. It's important for sensory compounds in wine, and it's interesting because it's really a small molecule, but highly reactive. So you'll see it react or oxidize and change throughout the course of the life of the wine, I suppose. Um, so it's kind of, it's a one big group with a lot of different factors and things to
0: think about. All right. So, wow,
3: we are way out there. I'm sorry, guys.
0: <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm stumped. I mean, I don't even know where to go next. So let's...
3: <laughs> we can pull it back uh, to winemaking.
0: <laughs> yeah, let, let's pull, pull it back, back into the winemaking.
3: Because I didn't even get into the... The science of how it's made exactly. So it can be formed both biologically through yeast and fermentation or chemically. And that's the wine oxidation and what happens over time through the winemaking process. That's it in a nutshell. All made. right.
4: We'll take
1: your word for it.
4: Okay. Yep. Yeah, so we talked about it. It's a product of fermentation or oxidation. so that can make it a secondary flavor but it also can come from oak barrels. So not only just the winemaking process, but the aging process and the oak barrels too. So it can also be a tertiary flavor or aroma. With winemaking, the biggest, so let's go back to the science a little bit. So we have the aromatic category, which is our good smelling category. That's what we want. We also had that second category, the aliphatic aldehydes, and that was the Bad category that can be a fault. And the primary aldehyde in that group is acetaldehyde, which we've maybe heard of as a bad thing. So, the main way you get acetaldehyde in your wine is oxidation. So, oxygen is a big factor with aldehydes. That's one thing that can cause it to become a negative aroma. And the counterbalance to that is SO2. So, SO2 can be a very positive things in, thing in wine. It's what's used to preserve it, make it last, not spoil. And this is one of the compounds that you don't want to turn into acetaldehyde. So SO2 is very important in the winemaking process.
0: So too much of a good thing can be bad, then.
4: Exactly, and you know this is a compound that's highly reactive. So you know it's good as it started, but you know the more oxygen it gets, the more it reacts it turned, it could turn bad.
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Not good. So
4: just another thing to keep in mind with SO2 and, you know, sulfites and all the the negative wraps sometimes they get, it's not necessarily valid. Sometimes we need that SO2 and the sulfites to protect
0: our wine. That makes sense. I mean, kind of SO2 is a bit of a preservative, so that helps to lock in some of the flavors and aromas and counter some of those negative things we get. Yes. So tell us, I mean, I know with, with some of the previous compounds that we talk to, you know, bottle aging or extended time tends to mellow them and kind of maybe even let them go completely. How does it react here with aldehydes?
4: So it just it depends on kind of that preservation. So, you know, because aldehydes turn into acetaldehyde with oxidation, you know, if your wine's not protected, as it ages over time, it's going to oxidize a little bit, even with a cork, you know, a little bit of oxygen is going to get in. So it can definitely become more prevalent as a wine ages, especially if it wasn't made to age or, or made with the best winemaking techniques.
0: Interesting. Okay. So that makes sense. Yeah. And
4: Jess, what was it you read where acetaldehyde, a lot of aldehyde didn't it do something negative to our bodies?
3: Yes. Thank you for that segue. So
4: um, there have been a lot of studies
3: that have shown that large concentrations of acetaldehyde can actually lead to symptoms of hangover. So increasing um, symptoms of vomiting, restlessness, nausea, confusion, sweating, headaches all the bad parts of drinking too much wine are linked to those to larger concentrations of aldehyde. They've also been linked to more of the fetal injury from like drinking while pregnant. So this compound has been linked to some some negative effects in large
0: concentrations. Interesting. And I mean it seems like it's rather prevalent in wine too, because you talked about vanilla, you talked about oak, you talked about the aging, so it seems mm-hmm. like it's stuff that you really want to find in the good proportions in your wine.
4: Right. And that helps segue us into kind of the how it presents in the wine and the different aromas and tastes. And so, you know, at low levels, it can contribute pleasant, fruity, fruity not fluity, fruity mm-hmm. aromas to wine. And then at higher levels, it's a defect. The threshold in wine ranges between 100 and 125 milligrams per liter, So the good aromas, we talked about vanillin, is the vanilla flavor. There's also hexanol, which is the fresh-cut grass Hmm. you can get with Sauvignon Blancs. Um, There's benzaldehyde, which is the aroma of marzipan, um, which I read. I don't know this for certain, but you can get that aroma with aged Pinot Gris. And then furfural, which is the caramel, aroma. So those are kind of the good categories of aldehydes, which a lot of those, you know, the vanilla, the marzipan, the caramel, we think of with aging and with oak barrels. And then we talked about acetaldehyde, the negative aroma. So not only does it have a negative aroma of overripe, bruised apple, sherry-like characteristics, it also contributes to an overall loss of varietal character for the wine itself. So While it's presenting some of these bad characters, it's also overpowering the good characters that are in the wine. And this is an interesting one because we don't see this with most of the aromatic compounds we've talked about. But you can even see it because it's an oxidative flaw. But, you know, white wines will start to turn brown or golden. Red wines will start to get more bricky colored as as the acetaldehyde is
0: forming. Interesting. So one of the aromas that has a visual indicator.
4: Yeah. And those indicators, you know, it's like everything I feel like we've talked about with these compounds. It could be this or it could be that. <laughs> <laughs> so it's yes, your Yes, your golden <clears throat> wine could be acetaldehyde or it could probably be something else too. Who knows?
0: Interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, cuz you mentioned the cut grass too and I was thinking, well, those could also be thiols, right? So Yes. Perhaps that mm-hmm. could be a blend of that. Interesting.
3: Exactly, yeah. Well, and just to put it in perspective, too, so the threshold in tasting acetaldehyde is 100 to 125 milligrams per liter, like just mentioned. The average for red wines for aldehydes is 30 milligrams per liter, white wines is 80 milligrams per liter, and then cherries is 300 milligrams per liter. Oh, interesting, so you know. Below the threshold and then way overshooting that threshold. Um, and so, those high levels of cherry are like a unique feature, obviously, of sherry's, but just to kind of put that threshold level into perspective a little bit. Oh, that's good to know. About how it might present in the red versus white. So, you and only then, of course, need sherry.
0: You know, a little bit goes a long way in some cases. <laughs> So how would we make the most of these flavors? I mean, you talked about vanilla, you talked about marzipan, you talked about nutty, you talked about caramel. How would, how would we, you know, pair them with other things?
3: Yeah, so we kind of broke down the, um, the good, the desirable ones. So Hexanol and was the one we mentioned would be like the freshly cut grass, tomato leaf, like you might see in Sauvignon Blanc uh, for, for us. is pairing with Sa Blanc would be Thai food. So, kind of going and playing around with those grassy, herbaceous characteristics, I think Thai food really stands against that. Um, With vanillin, another famous aldehyde, you know, you might, I thought something like a barbecued chicken pizza or beef short ribs could kind of stand against that um, and pair nicely. I don't know. What do you guys think with that vanilla and the, the flavor of vanilla beans? What do you think could stand up to that?
0: Oh, gosh, it's so difficult. I mean, it depends, I guess, if we're talking red wine or white wine.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah.
4: Well, and that one comes a lot from oak aging. Right. And so actually a fun fact, American oak has more vanilla than French oak. Well,
0: that, that explains why you get so much more like big, bold, blast of oak from the the american aged wines than you do french or hungarian i don't know so as far as pairings go for us with the vanilla that's a difficult one
3: Mm -hmm. so maybe let's pair it down to red wine
0: okay joe
3: well i think i
1: think (laughs) (laughs) the those flavors tend to come out with the with wines that are more tannic or have newer oak influences so there's more tan from the oak so probably a fattier cut of meat even steak or something, I think is a good. I was gonna say if you did white wine, I would say something with a cream sauce. Mm-hmm.
0: I think that makes sense. I can't think of anything. Yeah, better,
1: totally. So. <laughs> yeah. But certainly, so I, I mean, you could probably was... even do a do even do. We we always
0: bring up mushrooms because you know that's kind of
1: your. But I think you could mm-hmm. even do that with some sort of rich, um, mushroom dish, with maybe lots of cheese and cream or something in it. You know.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cheesy, creamy mushrooms,
1: mushroom lasagna with the bechamel or something like
0: that. Okay, oh, yeah, I could see
1: that. Ooh. It would be nice with a, even a red or a white. With, uh, yeah. And now I want mm-hmm. to make that tomorrow
0: night. So <laughs> <laughs>
1: I know.
3: Can get behind that. Well, here was another fun one. So with benzaldehyde, that was the one that gives you the like bitter almond kind of marzipan uh, flavor. And so I thought a Chinese chicken salad with like um. wonton noodles and almonds and chicken and 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 that kind of dish might be a really good pairing i don't know i'd like to hear your take on that
0: i can see that i mean i would also think something like with like a creamy cashew sauce like the asian type cashew sauce would be really good too like a cashew chicken or a cashew tofu something like that
3: Mm -hmm. sounds good and then
0: my last the last one which is my favorite fur for all which
3: kind of sounds like like a North Carolina roadkill <laughs> <laughs> euphemism. Oh, it's a fur for all down on Business 85. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> the fur for all, that one is uh, reminiscent of dried wood, caramel, wheat bran. comes with those oak-aged wines. And so for this, I thought maybe a, a creamy polenta dish with bacon or a pancetta or something um, topping that might be a good pairing
0: i can get behind that i'd also think maybe like a nice you know barbecue whether it's lexington style or Mm -hmm. style i think that would be good with those is that because i have mentioned business 85 and uh, (laughs) lexington
3: barbecue it could be
1: i'm
0: thinking (laughs) that (laughs) well any other wisdom you'd like to impart about aldehydes
3: it's a really big group of things that encompasses a lot that we've already kind of hint hit upon but um Double bonds, single bonds, all the bonds.
1: Even James?
3: (laughs) Yes, especially James.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess on that note, Jesse and Jessica, thank you very much. We definitely appreciated this and we will talk to you soon.
4: Thank you. You
0: You can find out more information about the Winemouths by going to their website, winemouths.com, or on Facebook and Instagram at Wine Mouths. That's W-I-N-E-M-O-U-T-H-S. And now, back to the show. So what is the Agriculture Department doing about all of this?
2: So, um, like I said, we've been responding to uh, any reports of Spotted Lanternfly. Um, When it comes to the known infested area, we are going out, I think we've uh, got about over 30 people so far involved in uh, surveying, uh, properties, marking all host trees on that property. Um, then we'll also, uh, go in and get authorization for folks to have a uh, treatment done on the property. Um, and then of course we'll go in and treat. So see, so yeah, I will say that I don't know if any other state has moved this far this fast. Um, like I said, we were, We knew that this was coming towards us at some point, and so we've been preparing for several years just thinking, you know, like, what if it's this year? Um,
0: Well, that's definitely a good thing. So I'm guessing that you and maybe the other uh, CAPS coordinators in the other states are probably working together to say, hey, so you've learned from what they've done.
2: Oh, yes, yeah. So we've met – we have meetings every year where we have breakout sessions, and that's been very helpful. Um, uh, We've also – we're very proactive about going up to Pennsylvania and Virginia to those infested areas and just doing field trainings with their crews to see how the boots on the ground, uh, day-to-day work goes. Um, in addition to, you know, like the more program manager level view of how do you, how do you keep track of everything that you're doing? Um, but yes, those other states have been incredibly helpful for helping us get ready. Um, I'm very glad that we were not the first people to have to deal with this. At this point, you know, we're at about, uh, four weeks into it. We had already visited over 1300 properties and treated about 899 acres. Um, again, that doesn't mean that every spot on that property got, uh, some kind of, uh, chemical applied to it. That just means that wherever we saw the tree of heaven, we went ahead and treated that. Or if we saw, uh, Spotted Lanternfly, we did a knockdown treatment if it was not on Tree of Heaven. So we've moved very far, very fast, and I'm honestly pretty proud of our efforts. So I I think we can honestly say that we've done our best with the tools that we have at this point. With our state response to Spotted Lanternfly, um, currently all of this work is tax funded. So it ends up being free of charge to anyone who's within the infested area All of the work that we're doing is being conducted by uh, either state employees or our partners. So uh, we will have state vehicles and be able to provide that identification. And we may go back several times just to kind of verify um, what trees are there, which things need to be treated, or do a follow-up survey just to make sure that things have taken um, either just to make sure that we really got every tree or um, We may take the detector dog on later on to see if any eggs have been laid yeah and again yeah these are your tax dollars at work so um all we ask is that if you see us um and we're legit um then we would love your cooperation because we don't want this pest to get out and harm any uh, nc wine at all so thank you
0: (laughs) excellent i mean i i I for one will say if i see someone out there in nc state agriculture department vehicle i will Give them a thumbs up and say, "Hey, do you need some water? Do you want anything I can exactly. help you?" So, uh, yeah, whatever we can do to help, we definitely will.
2: So, um, but we've been partnering not only with uh, within the plant industry division, which is where I'm housed. Um, we also have been working with the North Carolina Forest Service. Um, USDA has been incredibly helpful, um, and we've also been working with a couple of industry partners as well. So that's all been that. A huge contributor to our success. Though.
0: Well, that's awesome. I'm, I definitely think that you've done a lot of great work. I mean, 1300 properties in four weeks. That's for me, I can't even imagine going to 1300 different places in one week. Four weeks, it's just like that's a lot.
2: Yes, and it's some of them are like huge, like wooded lots, and some of them are like itty bitty little corners uh. <laughs> that are just like added on to someone else's. But, um, yeah, we've. been moving very far. (laughs) It's awesome.
0: So now you also mentioned too that the different CAPS coordinators throughout the states are working together. Is there a bigger coordinated effort with like the the national government or like the the national USDA or anything like that? Yes.
2: So um, most of this survey work is funded by uh, USDA. Um, And so there is um, also a bi-weekly call with all of the program state so every state that has spotted lanternfly or is receiving funding to survey for fan- for spotted lanternfly we will hop on a video call and kind of just go over what's going on in every state so um that's a good way that states can share like hey we found something along this pathway uh say if this interstate goes crosses your borders you might want to look there um things like that. So, uh, and then outside of those meetings, uh, we all have pretty good working relationships with our counterparts in other states as well. And they've all been extremely helpful because they remember being in the early days of spotted lanternfly. And they've been very great about uh, trying to help us get through those initial hurdles.
1: So is Pennsylvania the most infested state that we know of at least?
2: Okay. The map does change a lot. Um, I think last year it was updated about once a week. Oh, wow. I just mean, it's great
0: that you're updating it once a week, but it's terrible that we have to update it once a week.
2: Right. <laughs> yeah. Kind of what happens is it's it's just very difficult to detect the spotted lanternfly when they're in those egg or nymph stages, um, especially you it's know,
1: so small small for
2: one. Yeah, and if they're high up in the tree, if there's a leaf covering it, you just can't see it. Yeah, and so really the the new reports tend to come up during that swarming season when you can't ignore the adults that are you know potentially raining out of the sky on you. Mm. So yeah. That's where that's really where the updates come in.
0: I hope we don't see any swarming seasons here anytime soon. But...
2: Well, we haven't yet, but if the if that month after adult emergence timeline roughly holds, then we could be uh, coming into that in August. So um, this is kind of an interesting pest in that way too, where it doesn't have like a distinct uh, hatch date or anything like that. It's very spread out, and I just think that has to do with how it lays its eggs on so many different places. Okay. Like, you know, even on one tree, if one lanternfly lays its eggs on the north side of the tree and doesn't get any sun all winter, um, it just won't get that those same number of degree days um, to hatch as soon as any eggs laid on the south side of the tree. Or, you know, if something's laid on metal, that's obviously going to get warmer. And did we talk about when the eggs are normally laid? The eggs um, typically are really start becoming prevalent like during that mating swarm season because that's really what the mating swarm is all about is they're trying to find love and trying to make new eggs um and then they'll continue to be laid um kind of through the rest of fall but again since we're a little warmer it could be happening a little earlier so really they're seeing it farther north like September to October um since we're One to two months ahead of schedule here. hope we don't see anything before Labor Day Mm because that's a huge travel weekend, but it is possible.
0: So Um, when when people are listening to this episode for the first time, so we'll see adults. We'll start seeing some egg masses throughout different places. So that's what to be on the lookout for.
2: We are interested in any life stage of spotted lanternfly. Um, Yeah, again, taking a picture of it and using that reporting tool. Uh, is a great way uh, to let us know what you're seeing and where, because again, we're a brand new and the warmest state it's been to so far.
1: <laughs> so, what should we do if we look at the map and we're traveling to an area that we know is predominant, that the lanternfly is pretty predominant there? What should we do upon our return or as, as we're returning to try to make sure that we're not going to be a, a carrier for these creatures?
2: Right. The best thing you can do before, um, if you are leaving an infested area or stopping through an infested area is to just inspect whatever you're taking with you before you leave to just kind of check it, especially for egg masses. Um, and then do a quick check for nymphs or adults, whatever time of year it is. Uh, if you see one, I would try to shoe it away from your car. Um, if it looks like that might not be too successful, um, they are in a group of insects called plant hoppers, so they do spring around very easily. Um, it, You may want to get a car wash before you come along. Okay. Well.
0: that's, that's a, yeah, Everyone loves a good car wash, so why not?
2: So yeah, <laughs> May as well.
0: <laughs> so anything else we need to cover on Spotland or Fly?
2: As of time of recording, um, we are mostly seeing an infestation centered around the Kernersville area in Forsyth County. Um But since it is a little harder to detect right now, even with trained surveyors, um, that mating swarmer really let us know what we're looking at. Um, So the area could expand, again, with such a mobile pest. So uh, that may have changed a little bit, just even in the few short months before we get to the release date. So I guess
0: we're kind of wrapping up on, on questions. Aside from spotted lanternfly, what else is out there that we need to worry about?
2: Right. So, um, spotted lanternfly is only one of the pests we're looking for. Um, typically I'm looking for anywhere between 30 and 40 different pests in a given year. Um, so that includes, um, uh, and these are just plant pests that we're looking forward to. So mammals, snakes, fish, things like that, that's all fish and wildlife. So, um, but we're looking for insect pests of plants and plant pathogens. Um, So the full list can be found on the North Carolina Department of Agriculture's website. That's ncagr.gov. And then on our plant industry division page, uh, we have a full list of everything we're looking for. So um, most of those things that we're looking for are things that are just known to be pests in their native range. And they haven't necessarily come to the U.S. yet, or maybe they've been intercepted at a port or through, you know, a fruit inspection or something like that. Um, however, there are a couple that are kind of, you know, a little closer to home. So um, one of the, the next closest thing we have is the Asian longhorn beetle. So that is a beetle that bores into the insides of several different species of trees, but especially uh, maple seems to be its favorite. And, um, most longhorn beetles only go after, you know, dead or dying trees that are already on the way out, but this one's different. It really likes healthy trees and it can Mm. kill healthy trees. So it's very unusual. Um, and basically it just kind of hollows them out from the inside. Um, maples are very scrappy trees and so they will look okay for several years after being infested, but, uh, you can see what looks like sawdust coming out of the, of a position hole. Like literally they're eating their way through and then something comes out the other end. <laughs> um, and it looks like sawdust. Um, and then it, you could see sap weaving from the trees as well. Um, we're most worried about that one, one from a lumber export, uh, perspective, but also from a safety perspective. So if you have a tree with hollow branches and you have a strong windstorm come through, that can be damaging to your house and just to people in general. So right. we're very worried about that, uh, particularly being in a hurricane state. Oh, yeah. So um, that pest has been found in several spots throughout the U.S. and it is, is it possible to successfully eradicate it. So um, I believe it's been new york uh chicago toronto canada uh, southwestern ohio and massachusetts they found it before at least two of those have been eradicated it does take a while because you're working with a tree pest so you have to work on tree time so it could be a decade or two Mm. Um, but it is possible and again with a pest that can kill you know maples are its favorite host but it feeds on 12 different genera of trees. Oh, wow. So it could really damage a forest. Um, you, that's something that you want to get rid of before it gets rid of all of your trees. And fortunately it's a big clumsy, slow moving beetle. So it's a little easier to kind of contain it and then starve it out. Uh, essentially um, in 2020, because that was a year full of all the fun things. <laughs> um, they also found an infestation of that beetle in south carolina just outside of the charleston area and so um there's we're not exactly sure how it showed up there uh there are in the area where it was first reported from there is a rail line a major highway and an rv campground like all immediately next to that lot so Mm. we can't pin it on any one pathway but this pest had several opportunities to move there so and The thing is, is that the next closest infestation to us is that Ohio infestation. And even if it was one of those other infestations, pretty much to get to that location, you would have had to go through North Carolina at some point. So we've been looking for it throughout the state for, we were looking for it for several years beforehand, but we've really ramped up our survey for that. Um, That pest is a little trickier too. They're, they've been working on, I think 1996 was the first year it was found. They've been trying to find a magical combination of trap and lore that's used, um, or that would be attractive to this beetle, and it seems to not care about any of it. And so Visual Survey really is the only way to find it. Okay. So
0: really um, likes the maples and doesn't want to fall for anything else.
2: Well, it really likes the maples. It'll also go after... Um, Ash trees, ephemeral ash borer hasn't already gotten to those. It will go after willows, elms, true poplar, so not not what people call it a little poplar, thank goodness. Sycamores is another one, and I think there's a few other. Uh, golden rain tree, kitsura. I think there's a few I'm leaving off, but it will go after many different species of trees. Wow. So, yeah, again, something we want to get ahead of.
0: Absolutely. Well, Amy, this has been really informative. Um, I have learned a ton... Definitely. About Spotted Lanternfly. I knew very little going into it. And thank you for bringing the visuals. We will definitely take pictures, post them on our website with the with the podcast episodes so people can take a look at them. Um, what is the best way for people to get more information? I know we've talked about the website, but sure, yeah, it
2: again. Yeah, yeah. We keep, um, we really try to keep that uh, ncagr, ncagr.gov slash slf website up to date. Um, we're just asking folks to, if they see Spotted Lanternfly, see it, snap it, report it there. Um, if you, are a wine enthusiast or a grape grower. Um, we also have several materials related to Spotted Lanternfly that we're able to give out, um, including these fun wine stopper coasters that uh, feature Spotted Lanternfly and have our reporting information on the back.
0: Very cool. Well, Amy, thank you very much. Um, we hope that we don't see it, but we now know what we can do to help to prevent it and, and identify it.
2: All right, thank you so much.
0: That's it for this episode of Cork Talk.
1: Thanks again to Amy Michael Thorey for telling us
0: all about the spotted lanternfly. Remember, if you think you've seen a spotted lanternfly, head to ncagr.gov/slf.
1: If you like this episode, please leave us a rating or a review on iTunes. It helps others find Cork Talk and lets us know how we can improve.
0: And don't forget to follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NC Wine Guys.
1: Until next time, and remember, a cork only talks when it's out of the bottle. Cheers! Cork Talk is a free-run LLC production.
0: This episode is made possible in part by a grant from the North Carolina Wine and Grape Council.